Hi, this is Maris Kreisman. Welcome to the Maris Review. I am thrilled to have Ada Calhoun sitting across from me today, and I am slightly nervous that this that this talk is going to turn into just a, a huge therapy session. <laughs> Let's go there. Let's do it. <laughs> she is the author of the memoir, Wedding Toasts I'll Never Give, and the history, St. Mark's is Dead. And she's collaborated on several other New York Times bestsellers and written for the New York Times, New York, and the New Republic. And her latest book is called Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. I mean, (laughs) I feel like I felt I have felt so much dread. And it's very hard to classify like what it's from. Mm But reading your book made me feel a little less alone. So Good. thank you. I'm glad to hear that. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> People keep coming up and saying, like, I totally related to your book. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> thank you. But that recognition feels good. Yes. Good. So so why are we as Generation X? And I am 1978. And so I'm, I'm going to say I am Gen X, even though I feel a little bit like I live in millennial world. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, why are we so particularly screwed? <laughs> <laughs> Where to begin? <laughs> um, well, I mean, the argument I'm trying to make in the book is that it's just different. Like middle age for Gen X women, it's not like it was when our mothers and our grandmothers were middle aged because the average woman who's in her 40s right now is working a super full-time job. Mm -hmm. She's got her phone blowing up with demands from work and other spheres constantly plus the like World War III breaking news alerts Uh (laughs) all while usually doing most of the work still at home and most of the caregiving in the family, whether it's kids or parents, or in many cases, both, both. at the same time. Um, sometimes also grandparents, like you can get, you know, right. a, a lot of women that I talk to, and I know from my own life, like you can, you can once you start caregiving, like they, they just keep coming, the people who need care. Right. Um, you know, and all of that while going through perimenopause. So I think we did a lot of really smart things as a generation, or things that seemed smart, like waiting to have a family, waiting right. to get married. Right. And then in middle age, a lot of times that can really come back to get us because then we hit with little kids um, while we're dealing with all this other stuff all at once and going through perimenopause on top of it. And that is just – that's new. That's a new list of things to handle. And then, and then on top of that, and, and you get in, you, you devote chapters of your book to all of these things. So we'll we'll just touch on them. But like, I do feel like financially, we've we're in a very unique position, <laughs> like particularly screwed by the housing bust and, yeah. and unable to afford to buy homes yes. in a way that I mean, I think that's also leads. That'll trickle down to millennials, I'm yes. sure. But like, but we're kind of the first. Yeah. Well, I think that we were taught as kids that the American dream was real and that mm-hmm. every generation did better than the one before it. Yes. And I think we were set up to be that generation that that not only went into the workforce the way our mothers did, but got the corner office right. and, and achieved new heights of of homeownership and, and personal growth and fulfillment. Um, and the economy hasn't made that (laughs) possible for many of us. Um, You know, all these costs have gone up. So housing and healthcare and all these really major things, major costs to being just a a middle-class American 
are through the roof. We have the most debt of any generation. We have the very little savings, especially women. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you know, there's this one statistic that was like women of our generation have a one in four chance of out earning our fathers. And that's in spite of the fact that we have this amazing education, a lot of us. Which and that- just, that's, <laughs> that, that statistic stuck with me because yeah. I... All the saving that my father did for college for me is just like. (laughs) And but you're right too that we are, I think, the first in what could be a long line of generations that aren't constantly growing and achieving and doing better than the one before. I think I worry about. I mean, I have a millennial stepson and I have a Gen Z son, and I look at their generations and they're so wonderful in so many ways. And I and I worry about them. Yeah, it's it's hard not to. And you know, you talk in the book about social security and when that finally becomes less. It's not going to evaporate right, right away. I don't – from what <laughs> – I mean, who knows? <laughs> who can say? Again, can World say? War Three is trending right now. Um, so, yeah, but there, there's just been a series of factors, and, and one of them is, is social security feeling very precarious. Um, that's just led to a lot of money anxiety for our generation mm-hmm. and especially for women of our generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and – and in the book, I tried to really look at all the ways that we might not be crazy. So just across the board. Right. And the money one, really, I think I was able to drive home like, oh, no, yes. we really are you not imagining it, that it's very expensive and that it's much harder to make a, a reasonable amount of money because of also the job inst- instability. It's like, yes. you know, our fathers and grandfathers, they might have worked at the same company their whole sure lives. Did. I don't know one person who's able to do that now. And and you even get in, uh, into freelancing uh, a lot in the book, which I <laughs> heavily relate to. Yeah. How how freeing it is in terms of time and flexibility, sure. and uh, also <laughs> the other thing about freelancing, which is you don't really know how much you're going to be able to make in a year. Yeah. Yeah, and any job could be your last. And actually, the story came out of a freelance assignment that I got from Oprah.com right right in the midst of absolute freelance panic. So I had just had like three ghostwriting gigs evaporate for various different reasons, all within a couple months. Mm -hmm. And I just – I suddenly didn't have an income for the year. And I'm the breadwinner and I have this, you know, one kid in college and one kid going to high school. And like it was um, – I was had a really bad summer. And thank goodness that editor called and said, hey, do you want to look at yes. Generation X Women? <laughs> <laughs> or else this would be a very, a very different uh, winter. Um, and, and I – I do we were we were discussing before we started recording that um you know I'm 41 being in your 40s now can mean so many different things mm-hmm. um like for me I just kind of gave up on the idea of having children mm-hmm. um and I feel like a kid yeah and yet I know so many women who have teenagers yeah exactly Exactly. No, I think the this this span of possible lives in this generation, that's also really new. Yeah. The fact that, you know, I have friends who have newborn babies mm-hmm. and then other friends who are the same age who have kids in their 20s. Chloe and- Sevigny having a baby. She's 45, <laughs> found out today. Wow. That seems like a real Gen X. <laughs> <laughs> She's a very Gen X, you know, person. So, yeah, that's very funny. But it means that, like, everything's always on the table, I yes. think, for our generation. Like, And that's something that I heard over and over again from women I interviewed, that they just felt this real decision fatigue because they they it wasn't like anything was mapped out. They right. felt like they had to reinvent the wheel in every area of their lives. 
Right. And and I certainly did grow up believing that I was meant to have it all. Uh-huh. And that having it all should would be effortless. Right. And even you could do it all and still look pretty. <laughs> yeah. No, I think we were brainwashed. And I think that the that rightly that Anjali ad has been called out yes. a lot um as just having been one of the one of the major feats of of brainwashing and gaslighting of our time. And and as as kids in the eighties, we also you mentioned this in the book, have just seen more advertising perhaps yeah. than any other generation. Yeah, it's so funny. My son is like always curious about about at commercials. Like right. if we're watching like on demand and the commercial comes on, he's like, no, no, leave the sound up. It's like, what is this? <laughs> oh. Fascinated. Whereas, I, you know, I used to watch, I would get home from school at like three-ish or whatever, mm. and I would watch TV until bedtime. Sure. I'd eat dinner in front of the TV. I'd watch I'd do my homework in front of the TV and I got good grades like but I but there was never not a television on in front of me. Yeah. And I, the parenting style has changed so much between Indeed. our yes. yes. Tell me more about that. Very different. So um so yeah, one one story this woman told me was that her mother would come over and see her like on the floor playing with her kids and would say, like, why do you play with them? <laughs> like we never played with you. And I think that that's um that's borne out by numbers too, that actually the number of hours that we spend with our children is I think comparable or maybe even greater than the number of hours that our stay-at-home mothers in the 70s spent with their kids. Uh, So there's just a really different attitude toward how much work you have to do. So it's kind of funny because not only do we have more work to do at work now because we're we're in the office a lot more um, than past generations, but then suddenly the expectations for how much we're supposed to commit at home is through the roof. And I mean – you touch on just how judgmental people can be about what you should and shouldn't do in, in the raising of your children. And that sounds horrendous. <laughs> well, I think the expectations have just have gotten have gotten so extreme now. And I think that it's worth questioning all of those things. Like, why why did we think that we had to do everything perfectly? Like, why do we judge ourselves on every single front and not just on like one <laughs> or two? <laughs> I tweeted a, a thing. <laughs> Tell me what you tweeted. <laughs> and, um, I, I tweeted that um, you're told you're young until you're 35. And then when you're 40, you're over the hill. And I didn't realize I only had five years to just be a person. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I wonder. Yeah, I think I can see that. I think between 35 and 40, that's like theoretically like grown-up time or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. When you're when you're still achieving and <laughs> – and then you just hit the wall. Yeah. Well, I, I a friend of mine has a theory that that forty is like an old young person, and mm-hmm. that fifty is a young old person, and so that actually when we get to our fifties, then we'll seem young again. I'm ready for that. It's good, right? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. You had a woman in your book. I forget. I forget who it was who said, "Yeah, all of a sudden." I became old. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I don't know how it happened. Yeah. She said, like, and I was there. Like, she said it right in front of me, and um, she it was just like, I feel like I was young until five minutes ago. Yes, I, I really related to that. I thought, oh yeah, like you just there suddenly there's this switch flips. Like, and when you do the like reverse camera on your phone, like suddenly it's, yes. it's, it's just different. It's just different. Yeah, and and so uh, in a lot of the book, you talk about yes, there are the women who. Our parents, 
And then there are the women who are single and childless. Mm -hmm. And of course, the grass is always greener. (laughs) Yes. Right? Like, I often I, I'm often told that that by by friends with kids that that they envy me, uh-huh. and uh, I feel like kind of a freak. Do you? Yeah. You're, I mean, it's it's very common for it's a generation. A, yeah. not. I mean, it's what is it like twenty percent or something? Yeah, it helps reading your book. Oh, good. Well, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. And yeah, it's funny because I think that also there's in the same way that we've reinvented everything. Um, there, the good news is I think there's a real diversity of experience and choices and I think the stigma is gone from a lot of things in a way that like that people can make a lot of different choices like having kids not having kids like living in the city living in the country being married being you know divorced being whatever and that um there's I think a like a liberation in that Mm -hmm. um and that but it is true that because everything is possible I think the pressure really does increase on each individual woman to, like, make the right choice for them. And how do you know? I mean, especially, like, when you get to middle age and, you know, like you you mentioned, like, then you're, you're – the things that are available to you do start to narrow in various ways. Mm-hmm. And so it's like how do you know you made the right choice? And I think that's when we have to really, like, reckon with whatever decisions we made and whether or not we're happy with them. Yeah. And, and I do love that um, – you say in the book, despite what Dr. Gwyneth or Dr. Oprah might say, <laughs> wellness is maybe not the uh, be-all, end-all <laughs> answer to these problems. I think I was, yeah, and uh, Taffy Brodus or Ackner's article yes. on uh, on Goop I thought was so smart because she said there is this, what did she call it, like leveling up yes. in the wellness industrial complex where like, you know, you, you – you, if you get on that, if you get on that train, like there is no end to it. You just have to keep achieving more and more wellness right. until you die. Like there isn't, there isn't like that a, yoni oh, you're done, is... well done. You'll, you're never done. No, <laughs> the, um, the yoni egg. Yes, the... I'm glad you brought up the yoni egg. <laughs> and and so you do offer some. It's not a prescriptive book per se, but you do offer some some insights. I hope so. Yeah, I yeah. think the article that I did for Oprah was like deliberately just about laying out the case for why mm-hmm. this is really hard. Mm-hmm. And so I tried in the book to then lay out more of a case, but then also offer like more hope and more ideas that I mm-hmm. got from the women and the experts about what can make a difference. And so one of the big things is clubs, you know, or like other women, like anything that gets you actually face-to-face, like not online things, but Mm -hmm. actually face-to-face with other women on a regular basis. If you can build that into your life, it really does change everything. And that's been true for me in the last couple years. Mm -hmm. Um, Since I started doing that, it really has helped on just just about every level. And I think getting getting off the internet, like as much as you can really helps. (laughs) I think like educating yourself about perimenopause and that's why I devoted so many pages yes. in the book to that because I didn't know any of that stuff about hormones or you know the HRT controversy or how many things hormones influence from sleep to mood to your skin to whatever it's I just found it all really fascinating and a lot of doctors don't even know about it because there's been so little research devoted to it right and and the idea that you could be entering a second puberty, basically. Yeah, it really is. It's a harder because it's like it's basically puberty, but you have a ton of responsibility and nobody uh-huh. talks about it. You can't just like 
break down and cry or if you do you still have to like make dinner or like <laughs> yeah. do was, your work that was um one of the more telling anecdotes i thought where almost every woman i interviewed told me about breaking something out of rage at some point and then she always cleaned it up <laughs> um and and then of course i love the woman who um went to karaoke by herself because oh, yeah. I always do feel like that might be my spiritual yeah. <laughs> like that might be the only thing <laughs> and she go. just had, it was so funny she had just had like the worst possible day and all this stuff with her marriage was really rough and her, her job it just was really rough and she just like rented the room and she was and they were like it's a three person minimum she's like I know my friends they're gonna be here any <laughs> minute <laughs> and she just went in there and screamed like just at the top of her lungs sang these songs for like hours <laughs> and just kept ordering food she's like I figured if I just kept ordering food as if the three people would be there that mozzarella would, sticks yeah. for three for one person sounds <laughs> what an ideal situation that sounds yeah it like. helps in a lot of a lot of levels so and so we've we've been talking about how perhaps it's it's harder for this generation but i also feel like you address this very early on in the book that it still feels weird to complain <laughs> Yes. And I'm, I mean, I don't really want to say it's harder because I do think that right. there – I think it's different. I different. think it's hard It's hard in a different way. So like living through the Depression, living through world right. wars, I'm not going to go up against that at right. all. Um, but I think that it, it – I think the fact that we didn't have a Depression or world wars means that we get told – especially by people who did go through those things, you have no right to complain. Right. Uh, you're, you, you're so lucky. You have – look at all these possibilities that you had in right. front of you. And I think we've internalized that too, that I think there's a lot of shame around feeling anything but delighted with right. our lives right. at this point. Like, oh, yeah, we had Title IX and we were told we could be doctors. So, you know, if, if, if we didn't do all the things we wanted or if we're disappointed now, uh, it must be our fault somehow. We screwed something up. It wasn't structural. Right. And and I love how you talk about lean in and how Sheryl Sandberg told all of these women that if they just put in the time and the effort, yeah. that structurally the, their entire corporations will change yeah. to, to welcome women with open arms. Mm-hmm. And like to quote Michelle Obama, that she doesn't work all the yeah. time. Right? Yes. Uh, and, and I think the, the – while I think that, that those messages – are so well intentioned, and I they think, sure are. And, and I think they do, in certain cases, in corporate America, make a difference. Where you have a, if you have enough collective energy being devoted to like a problem, but but the downside I think that we've started to see is that when it doesn't work, we blame women mm-hmm. for it. We think like, oh, you didn't lean in enough. What's wrong right. with you? And of course, if you're taking care of aging parents and And little kids kids and doing most of the work at home and going through perimenopause to bring that back, like. Should you really be leaning in at that exact moment? And and is that what you want to tell that woman to do with that at that time? Right. Or is it cruel? It's a little cruel, huh? <laughs> well, it's just like the idea that the idea that she's not doing enough, I think is I think it's something that as women of this generation, we almost enjoy hearing. Like we we want more things on our to-do list yes. because we think, oh, like, right, okay, I've always done this. I mean, I I like many of my friends started working at like 13 mm-hmm. and had had jobs have had jobs until you know today like mm-hmm. just nonstop working and that I think we think okay well we'll just work harder but it just at some point you have to realize it's not it's not doing the trick right working harder and harder and harder like there's got to be something else and and you you mention our complaints that the hashtag um first world problems oh yeah 
And and of course, like it, I, it should go without saying, but like we'll say it. Um, we are certainly privileged in in yeah. many ways. Yeah, and I think you can. I think you can own that and like realize that yes, we are not. We are not in a war torn region at the moment. We are not. Um, we're not suffering in a lot of really major ways that that would make these problems maybe seem um, seem a lot less serious. Um, but that doesn't mean that women aren't having a hard time. And like, why right. can't we talk about that? Why can't we take five minutes in the middle of talking about, say, men's midlife crises, which of right. course we've discussed at length right. for decades in movies and books and <laughs> television shows. And I think like, can't you just take five minutes and say, even middle class. American women in this day and age have some things to talk about. Yeah. I, my my husband has a joke about midlife crises now that you could buy the Porsche, but then you'd have to drive, drive Uber. Like. <laughs> the Porsche Uber. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that was something I thought was so interesting was hearing the stories of women's experience of crisis or depression or whatever you want to call it in midlife compared to what we think of as the traditional men's midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. I think men's tend to tend to be kind of flashy. It's like yeah. the girlfriend in the car and the, you know, the vinyl from college and yeah. all that stuff. And so many of the women I talked to and heard about from therapists, uh, these women like we're still doing everything. Right. Perfectly. They're still functioning. Oh, yes. Yeah. So high functioning. So they were still getting the gift basket for the teacher at the end of the year and nailing the PowerPoint presentation and making sure the fridge was full of groceries before they went on the work trip and like the whole thing. And I think it makes it very easy to dismiss how they're feeling if they're mm-hmm. able to still do all these things. Right. Say, oh, well, how bad can it be? It can be quite bad. It can be quite bad. <laughs> and you don't breakdown by race or other backgrounds um, in this book. But yeah. again, I assume it's it's, it's implied very, that... Well, and I, I wondered about that because it's a very diverse group of women. And the question I had was like, well, do you... Do you start every single description of a woman, like, with her first name, her race, her age, and right. where she's from? Right. Or does that start to get a little exhausting um, for the reader? So, like, I just made a choice. Unless it came up, like, for example, black and Hispanic women tend to experience perimenopause yes. longer. Like, 10 for to 13 years. It's really bad. And I think that's, like, that's a case where it's worth talking about how race plays into that particular aspect of it. So in the perimenopause chapter, I talk about um, how race functions there. And there are other places where it comes up. But I thought, like, if we're talking about people being mad at their their husbands, for example, like, that's that's a fairly universal thing. And I don't think that right, in right, those right. cases, like, race or region necessarily has to be mentioned. I may have been wrong, but I, I, I thought that was the way to go. Yeah. We have so many different things to be mad about. <laughs> the, the, the isolating the one yeah. uh, is is helpful. Well, it's like, which one are we talking about right now? And, right. And yeah. So. Before we wrap up, tell me about some books that you'd like to recommend. Uh, I just did the audiobook of Middlemarch. And I, I hadn't read that in 20 years, probably. And I found like walking around listening to that book to really elevate my entire life for that those couple weeks. Um, so I highly recommend that one. Was there a famous narrator? No. Oh, no. that's good. So you're and like, you're... Yeah. And I love the voice. It was like she did the a lot of different – it's one of those things where she can do all the different classes, you know, and right, all the different right, like, right. things. Um, it drove my husband crazy. So like I couldn't listen to it like around the house. <laughs> He'd be like, God, that woman's <laughs> – um, but I thought she was fantastic. And um, 
And then I'll, I'll recommend my friend, uh, my friend's books. So I run this reading series mm-hmm. uh, support group, basically, for um, for women journalists with uh, Karen Abbott and Susanna Cahalan. And they both have great new books that just came yes. out in the last couple months. And Karen um, Abbott's is called The Ghost of Eden Park. And it's a really incredible real-life story about this bootlegger and the woman who um, who caught him. And then uh, – and a lot more. It's, it's really a page turner. And then um, Susanna's book – uh, is called The Great Pretender, and it's about this study from the 70s and how it influenced uh, the field of psychiatry, and I found that also really riveting. Yeah, fascinating. <laughs> Thank you so much. Ah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>